matching some of the capacity of the human brain. He has done it with imagination. You need a temperament that neither derives great pleasure from being with the crowd or against the crowd. Because this is not a business where you take polls, it's a business where you think. I was able to take a moment that could have been a crisis and, and really lean into it and add it to the narrative and convey persistence and determination through that. It is the path of the heart. All right, welcome back to season two of The Intrepid. My name is Caleb Nally, and I'm a freshman aerospace engineering major here at Cal Poly. Joining me today is Dr. Randy Knight, professor emeritus at Cal Poly. Dr. Knight attended Washington University for his Bachelor of Science and received his PhD from UC Berkeley. Throughout his career, he taught at Ohio State University and Cal Poly. He's also written several physics-related textbooks as well as conducted research in the fields of physics education, atomic physics, laser spectroscopy, and environmental science. Dr. Knight, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Caleb. Looking forward to having a conversation with you about this. Yeah, certainly. Uh, exciting stuff for me and probably for many of the listeners as well. So before we jump into some questions, I just wanted to give a general uh, little definition of entrepreneurship that you, we use on this podcast. So in this series, we define entrepreneurship as a creation or extraction of value, which may differ from the simplistic view of simply starting a business. With that in mind, let's hop into some questions. So we kind of always want to get like a little background on the person we're talking with. So let's see from many of our listeners that are in college right now, maybe in high school. So when you were in high school or college, what did you see yourself doing for career? Was the idea of being a professor always present or is that something that came later down the line? You know, probably when I was at the high school level, wasn't really necessarily thinking professor at that point. I had probably never met a professor. So I didn't even know what necessarily being a professor was all about. Uh, I was in high school in the 1960s, long, long ago. Um, at that time, nuclear energy was just taking off. And it was thought, you know, pretty soon, you know, the whole country is going to be powered by nuclear reactors everywhere. It was the, the, the hazards and the dangers weren't yet known. Uh, and so I, in high school, I thought, I'm going to be a nuclear engineer. Now, that kind of seems like the wave of the future. When, when I got on into college, though, and you have to start taking a lot of physics classes if you're going to be a nuclear engineer. I just, I, that's when I really discovered that I like physics better than the engineering. And, and so I switched to being a physics major at that point. But I guess I always saw myself as somehow getting to you know, research level or professor level or something of that sort. Sure. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people experience that. They start college one thing, but they take a class or two and they're like, hey, I actually really like this. You know, why don't I switch my major over? So sounds like you did that for physics and uh, engineering. So did you ever like envision yourself, even in like the college level, writing a textbook? I mean, did you, you were probably reading a ton of textbooks and you were thinking, wow, I don't know. Would you be thinking one day I'd be writing one of these? No, it was, was the farthest thing from my imagination. Uh, like, like probably most of you, you know, textbooks just kind of exist. You don't even really think of them as having been created or having authors and things like that. They're just there. Uh, yeah. and, and so the idea that I could, you know, write one was nothing I was ever thinking about at the time. Right. Definitely. I mean, most times I couldn't even name the author of my textbooks in all honesty, but I, for some reason I've read the uh, author section of the physics textbook for my class. And I said, Hey, wait, this guy's Cal Poly. Like, <laughs> it's pretty cool to know that someone that close has written a textbook. And so I was sure. like, I might as well 
reach out and figure out what he's doing and how he got to that point in his life. So yeah, it's definitely fascinating to actually examine like, wow, the amount of time and work that went into this was done by individuals, you know, just doesn't exist, like you said. And so uh, one of the big themes uh, on this podcast this season is focusing on entrepreneurship in varying fields. I thought the example of you writing the physics textbook showed entrepreneurial spirit in the field of academia. What compelled you to write these textbooks? Along with this thought, entrepreneurs are told to focus on the problem, not the solution. Was this the case for you writing these textbooks? Yes, it very much was. Uh, starting, I started my career as a more typical professor, you know, doing research and supervising graduate students and things like that. Uh, starting back about 1980, so 40 years ago, uh, scientists, physicists mostly, but, some, but chemists and biologists a little bit, started really studying how students learn science, uh, experimentally studying it. Uh, people had always just made assumptions about how people learn, but nobody had ever really started to experimentally measure how students learn. Right. Uh, it, it, it became a very growing field of research throughout the 1980s. And I, I learned about this starting somewhere in the late 1980s and got really fascinated by it. Uh, and I, I moved to Cal Poly in 1989. And at that time, textbooks were very, very old fashioned. They didn't take into account at all any of this newer research on what we're learning about, you know, how do people actually learn science? So I, I started, I didn't just say, wake up someday and say, oh, I'm going to write a textbook. But I started making more and more handouts and class notes and things like that. And then getting my classes deviating more and more from the textbook we were actually using with my own handouts. And it, it finally began to, to dawn on me that, you know, if I'm going to continue this, and I was really happy with the results I was getting, I thought students were, were doing better. I said, but, you know, I, I can't keep doing this with a standard textbook. Just, they just kind of, they clash. There's too much conflict there that, that I really kind of need my own textbook for this to work. So I kind of evolved into it rather than just, you know, starting out with one day with a, with a notion of writing a textbook. And I think most textbook authors kind of have found this to be the case. You know, just, it just kind of evolved out of things they were doing. And before they knew it, they were actually writing a textbook. Hmm. But, but, but very much it was a, it was problem-based. I saw a problem where we, we were getting new research about how people learn and, and the existing textbooks didn't, didn't line up very well with that. So there was a problem there to be solved. Yeah, definitely. And focusing on that problem is huge. So you talk about like actually understanding experimentally how people learn. Did you have to cross over in the field of psychology uh, at all to figure out like what was going on behind the learning process? There's a lot of cognitive psychology involved in this, uh, and, and it, it, it's kind of a mixture of psychology and science. When you want to understand how people learn science, you really have to have scientists do the work because you have to understand the content. Right. Uh, but, but, but you also have to have psychologists to kind of bring in the, the, the more cognitive aspects of it. So it's a very nice blend between kind of psychology and science in and, and this field that's now generally called education, science education research. I didn't really do much of the research myself, but mostly I just kind of, by reading the literature and talking to the people at conferences that do do the research, I kind of became an expert on, on what was happening in this, in this field. Yeah, well, it certainly sounds like you cared a lot about your students if you uh, 
were willing to put all that effort into making sure they truly were getting the best learning experience that they could. Uh, I, I, as a student, would really appreciate that, you know, instead of reading an old, outdated, mundane textbook that perhaps didn't fit my needs, you know, I got to experience something more that helped me learn more efficiently or quicker or something like that. And so it sounds like what you were trying to provide to your students. Did, were they kind of acknowledging of like back when you're using your own, your own like handouts and stuff like that and the textbook still, could they physically acknowledge that what you were providing them with was much better than perhaps the old physics textbook they had? You know, from a student's perspective, no, probably not. I mean, I could see they were doing better by, by test scores and things like that, but to them, it was just their physics class. They didn't know any, any other option. So they probably, the students at the time probably didn't re really recognize that I was experimenting with them in some ways. <laughs> yeah. Did you have to get like, um, so when you did actual experiments, you had to go get them registered with like perhaps the American Psychological Association or where did you? No, just, you know, experiments in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm giving them certain materials or trying to teach them certain ways and comparing that to what I, from data I had from students from years earlier. Okay. Yeah. You definitely, so you saw, you definitely saw trends within your own students' performance oh, yeah. that mm -hmm. helped you realize, okay, this is working and this is not. And, 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 you know, from an entrepreneurial perspective, you know, that's, that's marketability. Right. Uh, because it, toward the end of the 1990s, I've been at Cal Poly for, you know, seven or eight years at that point, uh, was when I finally had enough material together that I started talking to, to publishers. And, 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 you know, that's where, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, I really kind of became an entrepreneur. Uh, it was when I said, well, I've got a book here. Can I sell it to you? <laughs> uh, and, you know, you know, they want to know, you know, you know what, what's different about this book? Why would this book be better than the books that we already are publishing and things like that? And, and one of the things that happens in academic publishing in, in all fields is if you approach a, a publisher and say, hey, I've got a possible textbook here. I say, okay, well, send me a couple of sample chapters. And then they send it out to reviewers, maybe a dozen or more all over the country, you know, different types of colleges and things like that. You know, the reviewers being professors who teach this class and say, you know, give us a, your, your candid opinion. You know, if, if, if we publish this book, would you use it? Or, you know, if you see fatal flaws with this book, what's wrong with it? And so um, and they, they can be brutal. You have to be pretty thick skinned to be a, to be an author because some of the reviews you get back uh, can can be uh, can be pretty pretty brutal, but uh, but but you know that's ha having you know data and saying you know I've actually been using this with my students I can see better results I can give you some data you know that that provided me with some real marketability when I was ready to talk to publishers. Yeah, definitely, and being able to like you said sell yourself is a huge huge part of that, and so. Um, I guess what I wanted to ask is what was like perhaps the biggest innovation that you created that differed from the older style of teaching science to this newer idea that you were putting out there? Because in Cal Poly, it's got that motto, that innovation that excites. So I was just curious what your exciting innovation was when it came to that textbook. Well, it's, it's not one big thing. It's lots of little things. I suspect almost all of you take classes these days where you discuss things in small groups at various times. People didn't used to do that. You, people, you came to class and you sat and the professor talked and lectured and, and you took notes and that was it. So hmm. one, of the, one of the innovations that came out of this period in the 1980s was realizing the tremendous learning value of, of talking to your fellow students in small groups. Now, of course, when you write a textbook, 
the textbook's not the class. You, 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 you can't talk to each other through a textbook, but, but the textbook has many, is written in many ways to where it supports that type of learning. So as professors, we're kind of looking more to say, well, if, even in a physics class, I could have students, you know, talk to each other about a conceptual question and then answer it and things like that. So, so the book is written in many ways to support that type of learning. Yeah, that's that's true. I guess we do have like, especially over Zoom now in the virtual setting, they have these things called breakout rooms where quite often you are put into them for a class or a club or just anything where it's you're not being lectured at for the full like an hour of class or something, but you actually yeah. get to talk to your peers and discuss there. And so I guess that's something that we probably wouldn't have had, you know. And you, many and you years take back. that for granted now, but the college instruction was not like that when I started college. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, things like study. I mean, did it kind of arise out of the idea of like study groups that were being held outside of class and the professors saw the value of those and trying to incorporate them to their own class or was it kind of like a separate development? It was more of a separate development of, you know, just trying to look at the different ways students might learn and what, what works most efficiently and, and the discovery that students teaching each other is really very effective. And professors have always just kind of that before I would say, well, students don't know enough. How could they possibly teach each other? But it, but it turns out that it works very well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And getting that diversity too of like opinions and thoughts or views on the textbook knowledge and stuff like that, you know, that can definitely be helpful because if yeah. you have one person who said, oh, I solved it this way. The other person, oh, I solved it this way, but they got to the same answer. You just broaden your spectrum of how to be able to do something such as physics, which there are a lot of different answers. Or, or to. in the case of you know a science or math kind of course, if you're stuck on a problem, so sometimes you can't even really kind of explain you know why you're stuck to the professor, <laughs> or the professor doesn't understand what, what what you're trying to say as to why you're stuck. But a, a fellow student can understand it very easily because they're, they're having the same problems. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So on to the next question, uh, what elements of leadership came along with a project like this? Obviously there's a team involved in like such an effort, but how did the process of starting this project and assembling a team work? Well, I, there is a big team and actually before we started this interview, I actually kind of started trying try to think about it a little bit, how big the team is. I never really necessarily counted them all up. Uh, for the most part, I don't assemble it as, as the textbook author, my publisher does. Um, but actually, I'm going to try to make a little list here. So when, when I'm working on a new book, or more typically now, revising a book for a new edition, I'm usually working with three different editors that do different things, a project manor, manager, a supplements manager, a technology manager. And those are the people I work with directly. Right. But then there's a whole other host of people that I never meet, I never work with directly, but they're, they're just my suppliers. So in a science textbook, think of all the figures that are there. Those have to be drawn by artists. So they're, they're, they're artists doing these things. Uh, they're designers that design how the, how the pages are getting laid out and you know the, the different things that are on the page that you see. That's all the design. There's proofreaders. There's accuracy checkers. You know, in a science book, you know, I may know technically how to solve every problem in the book, but, but no professor can solve you know, hundreds and thousands of problems that go in there without occasionally pressing the wrong button on the calculator or something like that. So they actually hired an accuracy checker to, to double check all my calculations to, to make sure I didn't make any mistakes anywhere. Uh, photo researchers, where, where do photos in textbooks come from? Um, so for example, I can say I need a photo of such and such, but then there's there are actual people called photo researchers 
that uh, go out and find them. Um, they're the people that lay out the pages. Those are called compositors, uh, which is a very technical and, and difficult thing. I mean, you think about all the, the things that, that have, have to look, take place on the page of a textbook, you know, how, how those actually get positioned in the right places and laid out properly and so on. Uh, and then nowadays, of course, we have electronic books, e-text e of various kinds. That's a whole different person that has to, you know, set up and lay out all of those. Uh, textbooks come with supplements. So, if, you know, from a student's perspective, you know, you, you might have a study guide or workbooks or things of that sort. There are other supplements that are only for the instructors, like the solutions manual, sometimes, you know, a teacher's guide and things like that. So somebody has to write those, somebody has to produce those. So I figure that, you know, when, when I'm working on a book, there's probably a team of somewhere between 30 and 40 people involved of which I only interact directly with a half dozen or so. And then they're, they're the kind of, that they then interact with, with all the, the suppliers. And interestingly, most of these are not employees of the publisher. Maybe only four or five of them are. These are mostly contractors and small businesses. Hmm. So for example, the artists that do all the drawings, they're not employed by my publisher. They're, they're, a, they're a private small business somewhere that simply my publisher hires. Uh, and likewise, the compositors that do all the layout, that's another small business. Uh, some of these like proofreaders and accuracy checkers are just kind of individuals working on their own as contractors. So there's a whole host of kind of small businesses that are making this work. It's mostly not, you know, just employees of, of the publisher. Uh, this also gives you some sense of why textbooks cost as much as they do. If you stop and think about, you know, what really goes into producing a textbook? It's not really just, you know, the author working away in their basement by themselves. And then, you know, suddenly there's a book, you know, there, there's a whole team of people uh, and they have to get paid. Uh, if, if you want photos, those photos have to be, you have to buy the rights to them uh, and, and, and so on. So, so that, that's all one, one of the reasons why textbooks cost what they do. And, and textbooks have evolved over the years. When I was a student, textbooks were black and white. There were no color books. Very few photos, very few figures. It was just mostly text. Uh, there were no supplements. Of course, it was you know long before the internet, so there were no you know online homework servers or anything of that sort. So so all those things have made textbooks better, but they come with a price tag as well. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, we have seen the general trend of like phys or textbooks in general just getting more expensive, right? As time yeah. goes on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you're definitely, like you said, you're, you, the student is getting more out of that. I mean, to be able to go online and access even more problems to help yourself practice. I mean, that was something that obviously was unheard of 50 years ago. Right. You know, that's definitely like an outside tool that students can use. Hence the, and then of course you have to pay extra for that, which, you know, students mumble and grumble about the cost of textbooks, but I think they are quite uh, valuable for what they give you nowadays, especially with the pictures and stuff like that for people who are visual learners, you know, sure. seems like you're trying to appeal to this wide, wide range of students instead of perhaps people who just learn by looking at or reading some text and they're like, okay, I got this. Well, there's some people like, Hey, I could use a figure or two to help me visualize this and so on and so forth. So it seems like that's certainly one of your goals and, and or, even things that, that you would never think of, like, I forget the exact percentage, 
but close to 10% of men are colorblind. Well, yeah. It's a, it's a several percent, at least, of men. It's a, it's a significant fraction. And, you know, in, in a classic Cal Poly, you can be almost assured there's at least one colorblind person in that class. And as books become very visual, how do they perceive that? Right. Or, 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 and we want to make sure that we're not, you know, disadvantaging them. So we actually have, you know, hire experts that help us when we design how to, what kind of color palette to use and figures and so on to say, this is going to work best with people who, who, who have various visual challenges in looking at, at, at art. So, you know, all those things get considered. Right. Yeah. That is, that is definitely like something, you know, most people would not think about, but to be able to include those people in the learning process would be a great thing. You know, obviously you don't want to have a free body diagram or something like that. And all the forces are the exact same color and it's kind of right. <laughs> difficult to understand what's going on there. But yeah, that's definitely things like that. You have to take into consideration and really think about in order to reach the broadest audience. So another thing that we've addressed in the podcast this season is the idea that there's a climb before the view or there's a struggle before the success that comes with any entrepreneurial effort. Do you feel like in this period of writing a textbook and hard work, there was like a peak struggle or something that was, you just had to overcome through hard work and determination? And did you get this feeling of immense accomplishment that once you overcame this thing, once you finished that, did you feel really accomplished? Well, certainly any author, when you, when you see your first book finally show up in print, feels a tremendous sense of accomplishment at that point. Right. Uh, I don't know that I had, you know, immense struggles. It was just time. It takes a long, long time. From the time I really started seriously thinking, well, you know, maybe I really need to be thinking of this as a book until it was first published was close to 10 years. So That is a lot of time. <laughs> One thing I was thinking of, probably most of you know, this saying about 10,000 hours, the 10,000 hour rule, that right. uh, you supposedly need to spend 10,000 hours to, to kind of develop, you know, real expertise in a subject. Uh, and that's, I think, going to be equally true for starting a business in, in somewhat different sense. But, you know, you, you know it's, it's not something you can just wake up one day and, and say, oh, I'm going to start a business today and have it, you know, be greatly successful tomorrow. It's going to right. take you know, a long, long time of planning, thinking, uh, financing, all the things that go into a business. You know, one person that actually has talked about this a fair bit is Bill Gates. Hmm. You know, today we just know him, you know, he was the founder of Microsoft and now he's an uber billionaire. But, you know, that, that didn't happen overnight. Uh, right. he, he, he figures he did probably spend, you know, a good 10,000 hours uh, doing computer programming in, in high school and in the beginning of his college years until he became so good at computer programming that then he could start Microsoft. But, but it wasn't just, you know, oh, I'm going to go start a computer company one day. You know, he had that 10,000 hours of practice before he got to that point. Right. Yeah. And so if you have that, like if you have 10,000 10, hours of experience in something, it's, it feels like you are, are more liberated to like go and start something where if you're trying to start a business, but you also don't have very much experience, you know, it's a lot harder because then you have to put in those 10,000 hours on top of starting a business. And so that's why we see like people oftentimes doing something that they're somewhat experienced in, or they'll hire, like you were talking about earlier, contractors or outside companies to do the things um, that they aren't skilled enough to do. So kind of 
splitting up the task in such a fashion that the person with the most expertise does the job. And so that's what you're kind of explaining with like, you know, the, the illustrators, the publishers, people who actually put it on the shelves, things like that. And so, yeah, it's definitely a team effort. I think in pretty much all aspects of entrepreneurship, there seems to be almost always some kind of team going on there. It's never a, a solo effort. No, I, I, I can't imagine how you could do it solo. Yeah, yeah, that'd be, you got to learn so much. And yeah, it's just, it takes so long, probably. I mean, 10 years is already a really long time. But, you know, if, if you had to do all that yourself, you know, it's like a lifelong project maybe you got right there. Yeah. So definitely, yeah. Building a really good team is important. And that's throughout our guest speakers, they've all like talked about, yeah, uh, building a really good team is what's really core in like any entrepreneurial effort. So even in just writing a textbook, you know, that having a really good team was core to your success, right? It, it is, but, 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 but I should say you need some flexibility there because you, you need a team of people that have a certain set of skills and knowledge, but the, the individuals that make that team will probably change over time. Right. So, you know, I, I need, you know, three editors because there's three different specific tasks that editors do, but they're not always the same editors because, you know, they, they, they get promoted or they, they change jobs and so on. So, so likewise, you know, in, in any business, you're going to need, you know, a certain set of people with a certain set of skills, but, but you can't necessarily rely on it being a specific person because they may not be there all that long. Maybe we even go somewhere else. So, so you've got to be flexible enough to, you know, to say that, okay, I, I can work with, you know, lots of different people. I just need to keep assembling the same types of people. Right. Yeah, definitely. Being, being flexible with a team is a very important thing. I think that's a huge aspect of leadership is like, how do I, obviously my team members have to meet my needs, but I need to meet their needs as well. And so if someone says, Hey, I've got a better job offered at this place. I'm, I have to leave the team. I'm sorry. You have to recognize, okay, I'm going to, I have to let you go, but now I have to do my duty to the rest of the team and find someone else uh, who works well with this team to fit, fill in that spot. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. You were being a really good point in saying that flexibility is a huge part in success. And so another question I had was, what was the impact you hope to see by writing this textbook? Do you, do you feel like that purpose has been achieved? I mean, obviously you're talking about how you wanted to get your students a better learning experience with science. You know, do you feel like that's happened? I do. The, uh, you know, that was the impact I hope to achieve. And it's not that, you know, one textbook is going to be a miracle cure that, you know, solves all the problems of education and things like that. But, but I do feel that, you know, it, it has had a positive impact at, at improving the way physics education is taught in the United States. And I, I get a lot of, you know, feedback from users of the book. It's used all over the country and even other countries in some places. And I, I frequently get emails saying, oh, this is really, you know, so much better than the books I was using previously. So, so you get a lot, a lot of positive reinforcement when things are, are succeeding. Yeah, that's certainly nice to hear back, you know, hear, actually hear the professors or maybe even students say like, wow, yeah, this is actually a lot better than what we were using before. And so yeah, and it seems like you certainly- emails from students that I've never heard of, you know, they <laughs> my email address, you know, it's easy to find any professor's email address. So, um, so I do occasionally just get unsolicited comments from students. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. That would definitely make me feel like if a random person is emailing me, telling me, thank you so much for like, you know, doing this, it makes it so much easier for me. I mean, that, that would make me feel like I achieved the purpose we had just talked about. So, yeah, and that's, I think what, what you're doing in terms of writing a textbook to help students better understand is like, it's a huge, like, contribution to the society. I mean, you think about it, these college students who are taking these classes often going on to become like the next engineers, you know, engineers have to take it. Uh, physicists obviously have to take it. Probably most people in STEM have to take a physics class, maybe even outside of STEM. And so if they are given, if everyone who's taking that class is given a better learning experience, you just like think of the profound impact that it has all the way up, you know, they go on to better understand the higher level physics courses, or maybe they look back to this class and think how it affects their life now. And, you know, just being able to fundamentally impact such a crucial, crucial classes such as physics, you know, I think that has a really great contribution to society. I, I don't know what you think, but <laughs> I'd like to applaud you for your work in that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's certainly a type of job where you can feel a lot of satisfaction with, with things being successful. Yeah. That, I mean, did you ever have like students who'd go on and see where they ended up and you'd be like, wow, yeah, this is amazing. I had them in my class one day and now, now look where they're at. Well, of course, you know, some, some of the Cal Poly students, like, I, you know, have gone on to be successful in business and graduate school and things like that. Now, obviously they've had lots of professors and lots of courses. I can't say it's just my book and my course that made them <laughs> successful, but. Right, right. But you, do you feel like a sense of having helped contribute to that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Must be, yeah. Must be a very satisfying feeling to have. And so obviously you've had a long, fruitful career. What was the best advice you were ever given in your career, whether it's related to being a professor, writing the textbooks, anything like that? And is there like a line or motto you live your life by? If there isn't, that's okay. But. I don't know if there really is. Probably just the idea of, you know, have confidence in yourself. You know, all of you, you know, poly students are bright or you wouldn't be here and you're getting a good education. So, you know, feel that you can do things and have confidence to, to go do them. Oh, yeah, definitely. That is, that is great advice. I think all, everyone at some point dumps themselves in their abilities, you know, and often the biggest step in entrepreneurship, which is a really risky or may feel like many people may feel like I'm not, I'm not good enough to start my own business, but just taking that first step and having confidence in yourself is huge. I mean, we've had guest speakers who say you have to be so confident in your success that when no one else believes that you will succeed, that you can keep on going because you believe in your vision so much that you don't have to listen to others to get their affirmation. And oftentimes that was, that's what pulls them through and they come out the other side of that successful. You know, it may not always be the case, but having that confidence in yourself is definitely huge. Well, you need confidence in yourself. And, and by having confidence in yourself, you'll have confidence to change directions because almost nothing ever ends up the way you thought it was going to. So, so right. I mean, you may have a business plan and a vision, but you know, there's going to be a stumbling block somewhere. So you, know, either, you know, just beat your head against that stumbling block or you can decide, well, I'll go around it and go a different direction. 
the uh, so almost everybody that's successful has, has had to tack and back and forth and change directions at different times. Yeah. Did you did you experience that all writing the textbook? Were there any like roadblocks that you came across? And you're like, oh, I just have to go around this. It wasn't the original plan, but I have to modify. Well, my... you know, more academic roadblocks. You know, yeah, I, I got a certain way. I think I want to present a topic, and I, they, the publisher sends it out for reviews, and we get re bad reviews back saying, yeah, well, that's a really stupid idea. And you know, you have to, it, 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 you know, that's kind of painful to get that that feedback at first. But you know, if, if you can kind of, you know take a deep breath and think about it and you go, well, you know, I think they're probably right. I shouldn't have done it that way to begin with. Let's, let's try a different way. Yeah, definitely. Being able to look, being able to take criticism is definitely a big part of success. You know, it Instead is of thinking. It doesn't come easy. That's why I say you got, got to be kind of thick skinned at times, but, but, uh, but, but you, you can be thick skinned and still have that confidence in yourself that you know, ultimately you're doing the right thing. Right. Right. Definitely. Well, I think that's all the main questions we had for today. I was really happy to get the chance to talk to you. It was great learning more about your path as writing a textbook and what being a professor was like and how you exhibited uh, entrepreneurship in the field of academia. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Knight. Well, it was a pleasure to talk with you. As I mentioned to you when we were emailing, I never really had an interview like this before, but this has been an, an interesting and fun conversation. Yeah, it definitely has been. I've really enjoyed this. I think the listeners will enjoy this as well, even if they don't necessarily aren't sinking like a career in academia, you know, they can still find the knowledge contained in this very helpful to almost anything. Sure. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm going to stop the recording now. Have a okay. great day.